Right, let's turn to the second letter of Timothy again in chapter 2 and verses 11, 12, and 13. Here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. If we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. All right, some of you, perhaps many of you know that there are five of these trustworthy sayings in what we call the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. There are three in 1st Timothy, and I read one to you when I was reading to you the first chapter. Uh, This is a faithful saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the first. And then there is this one. Three in 1st Timothy, one in Titus, and this one in 2nd Timothy. If you're thinking, well, that that would be a good subject for my PhD, it's been done. Uh, An excellent one on these five sayings has been published. It's written by uh, George Knight. Happens to be a friend. And uh, uh, it's uh, been published. And I used to have a copy. You, you haven't borrowed it for, from me, have you? I couldn't find it. But I've got his commentary, which summarizes what he says. So, what a lovely subject to write a PhD on. The faithful sayings, the trustworthy sayings in the pastoral epistles. Well, what were they? Well, they were obviously well-known among Christians. Were they choruses that were sung? Did Paul write them and teach them to the converts? Um, Is it a fragment of a a longer hymn? Um, Is it the chorus of a hymn? And when Polycarp, the church father, a hundred years later... Uh, quotes uh, this verse, he adds another couple of lines that are not here. You can see that our text is semi-poetic. It's technically what we call a quatrain. Four verses, all of them conditional sentences, each one beginning with the word if. First two verses are positive, and the second two verses are negative. And then there is also a chronological progress through these four verses. They begin in the past tense, and then they move on to the present tense, and then they go to the future. So you can see that uh, though it's uh, a little verse, a little word, there's thought behind it. It's the thought of God, of course. It's carefully constructed. I wonder, were they proverbs that were written on a piece of papyrus? And uh, a Christian mother would write them out and uh, would put them up on the wall, a sort of first century uh, fridge magnet, and she would see it there? Or were they on uh, the walls of the place of worship? Like um, on... The church clock, we have a verse. The time is short. 
did they quote them to one another um, during various trials? Here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we disown him, he'll also disown us. If we are faithless, he'll remain faithful. He can't disown himself. Was it a statement that um, a new convert made at his or her baptismal service? So we can guess, can't we, the various contexts in which these five faithful sayings, and many like them, were used in the early church. Um, you know how a, a verse is very precious to you. It was a means of grace to you at a certain time in your life. And you, you love that verse. You've written it somewhere. You've got it up on a card at the present time, perhaps, on your, on your desk. Well, let's look at the first of these uh, <clears throat> epigrams. If we died with Jesus Christ, we will also live with him. The uh, virtually identical words are found in Romans chapter 6. This truth was vastly important to Paul. And he wanted it to be important to Timothy and to the Roman congregation. Because uh, for him, the entire doctrine of the Christian life was really grounded on this fact that all Christians have died to sin in Jesus Christ and with Jesus Christ. That the tense of the verse is past tense. We were put to death with Jesus Christ. So uh, this trustworthy saying is referring to something then that's happened in history, in time and space in the death of the Son of God and then in our own histories when we were joined to him by faith when we entrusted ourselves to him and we were one with him from that time onwards you understand now Paul is not talking here about something that needs to happen and he is not describing an ongoing, present action. We are dying to sin, though that's, I know, a biblical truth. We are mortifying the remains of sin in us, and we'll continue to do that until we see the Savior. Um, he's not describing something in the future. We will die to sin one day. Uh, what we're reading here is not an imperative. He's not saying, annihilate, kill, Sin, mortify, sin. He's not enforcing any obligation at all. This is not um, a word of, of advice to Timothy. Come on now, Timothy. Uh, let's both carry on dying to sin. It's not that. This is a simple statement of what has happened in the life of Paul and in the life of Timothy and the Lives of all the professing Christians in the church in Ephesus. We all died with Jesus. If you're a mere believer in Jesus Christ tonight, then you've been joined to our Lord Jesus Christ. You are in, believe into the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so you have, I'm saying to you, died in him. It's, it's a past event. 
It's an accomplished fact. Well, what is a Christian? A Christian is a believer in Jesus, and like every Christian, anytime, everywhere, the last 2,000 years, he's died to sin. I'll explain it. It's fundamental to Paul's practical application of his Christian teaching. At a particular time, in a Christian's past life, there was a completed event. There was this past experience. It took place in a definitive, once for all, irreversible occurrence. Every single believer has died in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. In his dying, he was our substitute. In my place, condemned he stood. He really bore my guilt and my judgment. He paid the wages of my sin in his death. We were joined to him. We were in him on the cross when he breathed out his last. When he tasted death and lay in the grave for two days, we were dead in Christ in him. Let me say again, let me explain this because it's so important. Paul isn't here um, underlining the power of positive thinking. He's not saying uh, something like this. uh, Whisper to yourself 50 times every day, I've died to sin, I've died to sin, I've died to sin. And if you tell yourself that enough times, then uh, you will be persuaded that you are a person who has died to sin. Paul is not playing games, psychological games here. He's talking about a reality that God has wrought in imputing our guilt, the things we did in the body, in our imaginations, in our thoughts, in our absences. He's imputed all of that to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's talking here about you Taking this on board, taking it into your thinking, your understanding, your reckoning that a great change of status and resources and relationships occurred when you gave your life to Jesus Christ. And you prayed, however you prayed, said, Lord, I want to be a Christian. Um, God of mercy on me, a sinner. Um, I give you my life. Help me, Lord. <laughs> Whatever you said in your words. But Paul is not saying, uh, let go and let God. Let God become your Lord. He's not encouraging denial. He is not encouraging people who are whole hogs still in the world. Just add a little bit of Sunday night religion. But their thinking and their values and their desires for money and and fame and unseemly things are so worldly in their thinking. Let's pretend it's not like that. He's not saying that. Um, You people who are in love with this vain world, uh, for a moment uh, act as if you're not. And pretend as if you died to sin. 
He's not encouraging denial. Paul is describing uh, uh, once and for all definitive change that occurs in you when you commit your life to Jesus Christ. If a man is in Christ Jesus, if he's in him, if he's joined him, he's a new creation. And the old things have passed away and, and everything's new. Everything's different after that. Timothy, now do you remember this? Paul is saying to him, um, what you used to be, you were in Adam, weren't you? As was your mother and your grandmother. But now the three of you have been united to Jesus Christ and as he died on the cross, so also those three generations of the Timothy family, they also died to sin in him. All right, what does that phrase mean? Died to sin. Well, here is the simple answer. It means this, that you have been set free from the tyranny and the lordship and the authority of sin over you. You remember that in the New Testament, uh, sin is portrayed as a strong man armed, and he has his fortress, and he has his dungeons, and all his uh, enemies and his, uh, his people are, are kept locked in this place, and he's merciless with them. And that's how we were before we came to Christ. We were prisoners. We were enslaved to sin. Because sin told us the last place you want to be on a Sunday night is in church. And you did what sin told you to do. Don't go to a Bible preaching church then. Uh, change the conversation when the boy who is walking up the hill with you is telling you where he was on Sunday and starts to talk to you about the claims of Christ. Change the conversation, and you do. Don't think about praying. Don't think about dying. Don't think about the Bible. Don't think about Jesus. And sin was your former master, and it told you things like that, and lots of other things like that. And you just went along with it. Because you were a, a slave to sin. And then God intervened. He perforated your life. And he joined you to Jesus Christ and all the benefits of his wonderful life. His perfect life. His powerful life. His atoning life. And all those benefits positionally and actually were imputed to you. They became yours. His righteousness, his redemption. God gave it all to you. So the old sin-obeying man you used to be, that would be watching TV on a Sunday night and not being here in church, he's gone. That man doesn't exist any longer. He's put to death. The old unbelieving pagan you used to be died to sin's ruling power over you. You were placed under the rule of a wonderful new master who cared for you like, like a shepherd who loves his sheep and he cares for them and he guides them and he leads them by green pastures and, and still waters. 
So the, uh, that old man is gone. He's dead. And when a prisoner has died, then the warden can open the cell door and he can shout to him and scream to him and he can hammer him on the bed, but the man feels nothing because the man is now dead. Mr. and Mrs. Christian, he, she has died to the influence of that tyrant, sin, over us. Sin uh, has no more hold over us. And it's like that with every single believer. Every single believer sins, of course. We sin. But when sin says, you reject all that the preacher says, you don't listen to sin. When your friend says, come to the CU on Friday night. Come to the young people's group on Friday. You go along with them. Come to the nightclub with me. You don't go. Because you've got a new Lord. You've got a new master. We don't obey sin. We now obey the Lord Jesus. That old man, he's, he's dead. He's gone. Okay, uh, let's think of a, an ancient slave market. If you're a slave, you must obey your master's voice. Come here now. Come here. Your master says to you. You go along. You've got no choice. You're alive to his voice because he's your master. But suppose you were sold now to uh, a new master at an auction. And one day you're walking along the street and your old master sees you. Hey, come here, he says. You don't have to, do you? He's your old master. He's not your new master. You're not under him. A man can't serve two masters. Uh, only if you're afraid. Only in a moment of weakness uh, will you go over to him and, and cower before him. You don't have to submit to him any longer because you have no obligations to him at all. He's not your master anymore. Sin... Unbelief is no longer your master. Once it was, but that man has died. And that's what Paul is reminding Timothy of here. Timothy, you, you and I have died to our old slave master. Because we have we join now to Jesus Christ. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day. Only a Christian can long that that should be true. We've come alive. So, why do you sin so voluntarily in your thoughts and in your words and in your actions when you've been delivered from that old man? If you're a Christian, your life has been divided into two parts, B.C. and A.D. Before Christ... And after deliverance. And the story of Paul's life. And the story of Timothy's life. And the story of every Christian's life. Is this translation from being before Christ. To after deliverance from sin. Through Jesus Christ. Our old self crucified with him. Life we used to live. The person you once was. The old you. The old 
unbeliever who just judged things according to the flesh and uh, valued things by carnal and emotional values. That's gone. And your friends go searching for you. I haven't seen him around. And they go to the nightclub and you're not there. They go to the bar and you're not there. They look in the betting shop where you used to spend a lot of money and you're not there any longer. You're you're gone. The old man, he's died. He's died to all the follies of sin. He doesn't exist He's crucified with Christ. And uh, when they meet you, you are singing under your breath or whistling to yourself, the Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me down to lie in pastures green. He leadeth me the quiet waters by. Paul says, I live, yet no longer I, but Christ lives in me. And that's magnificent. Sometimes we look at the pressures that we face and the mountains God asks us to climb and the burdens that he asks us to bear. And we say, I don't think I can manage it. Uh, I can't cope any longer. And then we come back to these great words. We live with him. We live with Christ day by day. When Paul saw this, he said, I can do All things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what he said. Christ lives in in every Christian here tonight. He inhabits. We inhabit the body of Christ. And every Christian has the fruit of the indwelling Christ in him. And we can't excuse our our failures by saying, Well, if only I had Jesus with me. It wouldn't have happened. Everything would have been different. You can never argue like that because Christ is with you and in you. And so you can carry on any caring ministry. You can climb any mountain. You can bear any burden. You can suffer any frustration. You can submit to any loneliness. You can overcome any temptation. You can, you can bear any pressure. Because of this new life. That Jesus himself is giving and sustaining in you day by day. Whatever God asks you to do. Whatever new challenge he gives to you, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Because the old unbelieving man who couldn't do those things, well, he died. On a green hill far away, he died a long time ago. And now that risen Savior is living in you. If we died with him, we will also live with him. And that's your verse for tomorrow and all your tomorrows until you see him. That's a trustworthy saying. The second one, that was a long, I'll be shorter with the other three, but they're all important. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Well, now, isn't this strange that I'm speaking to you again tonight on enduring? I spoke to you this morning 
on enduring. And here it is in this passage before us tonight. Now maybe there is somebody in this congregation who is feeling like giving up. Who's really getting near the end. And uh, the Lord has brought you here this morning and tonight to be hearing an exhortation about going on, go on, go on, go on. Maybe the person who needs that exhortation is me. Maybe the person who needs that exhortation is you about enduring. Or how do we endure? Well, we endure um, three ways, really. Firstly, Getting a realistic view of yourself. I am not as strong or as wise or as patient as I think I am. But God is stronger and wiser and more patient than I can imagine. And in our better moments we know that and are so thankful for it. We're not as good as we think we are. And the only thing that keeps us going is that we have this Lord. We have this Savior. And he's wonderfully good and patient with us. And kind and and loving and discerning. He knows our needs. He knows when we would reach breaking point. And he never takes us past that point. The great foundation of your hope, every Christian's hope, is this. God justifies the ungodly who believe in Jesus. That's the bedrock of Christian assurance. The Lord came seeking for sinners. And he finds them. And he saves them, and he gives them a purpose in life. So you have to have a realistic view of yourself and and the Lord. Secondly, you have to discover your purpose in life. We're talking about enduring. And I'm saying the second thing then is um, discovering your purpose in life. Why did God lay hold of me? Why did God choose me? Why has God been so kind to me in these remarkable providences that I'm not in the gutter tonight, I'm not propping up the bar, I'm not watching a a boring Hollywood movie that I've seen three times already. I'm not worried about this week to come. I'm, I'm a new creation in Jesus Christ. Why? Why? What's the purpose of of my life? You discover his purpose through the many providences by which he guides you. The friends he brings into your life. The church he, he brings you to. What duties and responsibilities he gives you in your family, amongst your neighbors, Day by day. 
And, and then you don't waste your life with secondary issues because those are the big things that God has given to you. That's how you endure, Paul says, this one thing I do. There was a, what the New Testament, what the Sermon on the Mount calls a single eye. Uh, have you seen a sniffer dog at work in an airport as uh, the, the police handler he takes him up a, a line of cases um, and bags that you could you carry on luggage and he's there and he's sniffing everyone and his ears are attentive and he's concentrating on, on what he does you've seen another dog left off the leash then and running into the park he chases every butterfly he sniffs every tree. He has no mission. He has no purpose. The Christian says, this one thing I do. My chief end, what's your chief end? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. You know the parable of, of the talents. Jesus tells us that uh, a man is faithful in his talents and he gets more. He gets another and another. Five become ten. Three become six. A preacher marries. And then he has to love his wife as himself. That one thing he does. And then God gives them children and he has to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And, and that one thing he does. And then he gives him a pulpit and a ministry. And he has to speak three times a week. And that one thing he does. And then he gives him a website and an international correspondence. This one thing he does about every talent that God gives to him. And he gives him another one. Because he's faithful in the one. And then God gives him another and another. A talented artist will say, this one thing I do. A talented athlete will say, this one thing I do. A caring teacher will say, this one thing I do. A student who wants an excellent degree says, this one thing I do. You know, many, many people are like that dog, let off the leash and chasing butterflies and sniffing every tree. People are fragmented. They're unsuccessful. They don't attain anything because their, their priority is not to give themselves, first of all, to that which God has made clear to them. They're family men. They have a vocation. They have to earn a salary week by, by week. They must do it with all their might. Whatever their hand turns to do. It's not enough to have a list. My desk is covered in lists. And one thing on most of them is tidy your desk. <laughs> and we can delude ourselves into thinking that because we have a list, we have a purpose. It is not the case. A list without a purpose, without priorities, is just a list. 
discover your purpose in life. I'm talking about enduring and how we can go on. I'm not talking about surviving now. I'm talking about persevering. And I'm saying the first way to persevere is to have a realistic view of yourself. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, you know your weakness. So, guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim in this barren land. So you bring the two together. Uh, We go forward, our great weakness knowing we sing. And then, secondly, you discover the, uh, the chief end of your life. What do you do with this brief earthly pilgrimage? And then thirdly, you forget what lies behind you. That's how you endure. You, you forget what lies behind you. You can't keep looking back. There's an incident after the American Civil War ended when um, the uh, wonderful Christian general Robert E. Lee, who led the Confederates to defeat was visiting a a woman and uh, she showed him the remains of a wonderful tree in front of her house. Look at it, she said. Look what what they did to it. My grandfather planted that tree and it had been destroyed by Union artillery fire. And she waited then for uh, Lee to condemn the North or sympathize with her loss. But he paused and he looked at her and he said, Cut it down, madam. And forget it. Cut it down and forget it. And there are some things you are harboring. It's no good to harbor them. It's no good to pick over those dead bones. Forget it. Deal with it. Bury it. You know, as a congregation, we're going through this challenging process of choosing a new pastor. And we have to forget many things in the past. If Paul and Barnabas disagreed when they came to evaluate John Mark, and they were both giants, then pygmies like ourselves are bound to disagree as we assess men. And so the Apostle Paul says, That he forgets the things that are past. Isn't that a wonderful thing? To refuse to remember things in the past that he regrets. And if we're going to make progress, if we're going to persevere in the Christian life, then we must mortify vain regrets and disappointments. We are to refuse to remember our our worries and our failures and our defeats and the attacks of our enemies and the praises of our supporters Yesterday's blessings are a day late for today. And all the accomplishments of the past. The stuff we often do to make the world glad that we got out of bed in in the morning. The things we brag about, the degrees and the honors and the column inches. Last year means nothing. Last month's Radio Times means nothing. If Manu got promotion 10 years ago, it means nothing. If they got demoted, it means nothing today. Let the archaeologists write learned papers. 
It's irrelevant to us. You know, when I was growing up, oh, until I suppose 20 years ago, the Cambria News would publish the wills of uh, people who had died in the town. And you could see how much money they'd left. The Western Mail did it. The Times had a feature every day it would publish. Wealthy, famous people's wills. And we know of certain people who were as miserly as Scrooge because they wanted as large a sum of money to be left in their wills so that it could appear in the paper and people could see how wealthy they were. What madness! It means nothing. They're rotting in the graves. They're either in heaven or in hell. What a blessing is holy amnesia about our victories and our defeats and our gains and our losses. If we are looking back, we can't look forward. If you put your hand to the plow, then you have to look forward. If you look back, that's going to be a a dreadful plow line. But if we keep going, if we endure... And we are looking unto Jesus Christ. Uh, so Paul is here in manacled to a, a soldier at the order of the Emperor Nero, soon to be put to death by that mad tyrant. And he says to Timothy, We shall reign with Jesus. That is what this faithful saying says. Our Lord says, Where I am, there you will be also we shall be with him forever and he's in the midst of the throne and that's our goal the sky not the grave is our destination and he will welcome us he will say well done good and faithful servant you remember Stephen as the another rock came shattering in and broke all his teeth or broke his nose or gouged an eye out and rendered him deaf and broke another rib and he was staggering and then he saw he was given a sight of Jesus and Jesus as he saw him was standing at the throne and he was waiting to welcome him if we endure we shall reign with him we are co-regents with Christ Uh, briefly thirdly if we disown him he will also disown us And surely there, uh, Paul is referring to Matthew 10. I think there's a reference in your Bible to uh, these words. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. So, Jesus is our advocate with with God. And uh, the God who is light and in him, no darkness at all. We, we have an advocate that will speak up for us. We have a mediator by whom we can go to this God before whom the angels cover their eyes and sigh to one another, holy, holy, holy. And our advocate stood in our place. He stood in the naked flame of the righteousness and the holiness of God. He bore our sin and our condemnation in his own body on the cross. And one day he will introduce us to his father. He'll say, Father, this is, this is a person 
And um, they loved you. They weren't ashamed of you. They're from Aberystwyth. And they spoke for you. And they said, I'm a Christian. And they said no to sin. And they said yes to righteous living. Uh, This man acknowledged me before the people of Aberystwyth. And I want to acknowledge him before you. I want to present him to you. Father, he's going to live with us forever and ever. But there are others, and they disowned Christ. And we know them, don't we? They've said, we won't have this man rule over us. They had no time for Jesus. They had no place for him. They held in contempt his name, his day, his spirit, his book, his people. And Jesus will disown them, he says. He says that. He will say, depart from me. I I never knew you. He's talking about the bonfire of the vanities. He's talking about the cesspit of the universe, where the beast is and the false prophet are, and the and, and the devil and his works, they are all there too. And that is the logic of defying God who made you. God who's given you a conscience. God who's been so good to you all through your life. This is a faithful saying, if we disown him, he also will disown us. They're not my words. They're Jesus' words, aren't they? Paul is quoting what Jesus said in Matthew 10. Was Jesus wrong? Was he just uh, frightening us? Do, Do you know better than Jesus? Who am I to believe? Am I to believe the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount? This kindly, wise, and loving, and holy, and righteous man who lived a spotless life. Have you lived a spotless life? Have you prophesied that you will rise from the dead? But Jesus did, and did rise from the dead. If we disown him, he also will disown us. And then lastly, the fourth of the quatrains, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. It's the final epigram here. For he cannot disown himself, verse 13. And it's so fascinating. Um, What are the implications of this sentence? You see, it can mean two things, can't it? And both are true. Um, And there's little help from the actual words. This word faithless can also mean disobedience. It can be speaking of the righteousness of the Lord. Remember the Lord, he spoke to Pharisees, very straight. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he says. And he spoke at length to them. He faithfully judged them, didn't he? 
Jesus spoke of two destinations. The bifurcation of our destinies. Of heaven and hell. Of sheep and goats. Of saints and sinners. And that Jesus would be faithful to repudiate those that had lived in sin and never confessed their need of mercy and forgiveness. You think of a judge now, and this is a great judge. You know, the, the justice of a country depends on faithful, wise judges who can't be intimidated or bought. And this judge then has a reputation of being absolutely straight and fair. You bring all the facts into consideration. And one day, who comes into his court but his own prodigal son? And he's charged with a dreadful crime. He loves his son very much. And he knows he faces a long term in prison if he is found guilty. Does such a judge disown his whole life? That he has just valued justice and fair play. But this is someone he loves. I would think such a judge then would, would really have to be harder on himself. On not being so severe. Because this boy had had all the privileges of being raised in a house where right and wrong were scrupulously adhered to. He had all these privileges and yet he had repudiated what was right and wrong. So we are told, if we are faithless, he will remain faithful. Our judge will be straight with us. And it's a word of warning. And that's a legitimate interpretation of it. But it can't be also understood as speaking of the faithfulness of the Lord to the promises of mercy to those who believe in his Son, even when they have sinned abysmally. And so we have the parade of people in the scriptures. Great man, Abraham, compromising his wife by lying about her that she is his sister and not his wife. We have righteous Lot. And he gets drunk. We have uh, Moses losing his temper and killing someone. We have David's adultery. We have Solomon with 300 wives and hundreds of concubines. There's Peter denying his Lord with, with curses. They were all forgiven men. They were faithless. But God was faithful. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
Aren't you mighty glad of, of that promise? Have you never warmed your hands by a fire on an open university course or um, when you were away for a weekend somewhere and there were no other Christians around and people mocked Jesus and the Christian church and you never said a word? Aren't you thankful that God promises forgiveness for great sinners like Moses and David and Lot and, and Peter. And so we can look at this opening word, um, if, and we can translate it by although, because the preposition is the same in the original Greek. Although we are faithless, he remains faithful. He can't disown himself. Although we have behaved like King David, we have behaved worse than King David. God is still merciful to us. He has written this promise indelibly in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And he said, whosoever believeth, whosoever, whosoever, whosoever believeth on me shall not perish but have everlasting life. What comfort for Timothy as he looks back at bouts of unfaithfulness in his life. What comfort to me and, and to you. That God's mercy is grounded in his faithful covenant keeping. What God is who sent his son to save Abraham and save David and save Noah and save Solomon and Peter. God is always the Jesus who prayed, Father forgive them, they know not what they do, is the Jesus who is with us tonight and is saying to us, come unto me. And I will give you rest. He can't be unfaithful to what he has promised. He can't for a moment disown himself and throw into hell one of those he gave to his son to save because he committed some terrible sin. There was an occasion when Samuel Rutherford said, often and often, I have in my folly torn up my copy of God's covenant with me but blessed be his name, he keeps it in heaven safe. And he stands by it always. I would have torn it up. I would have got it. And I'm not a Christian. I don't want this Christianity. And God's kept the covenant. He's kept it. He won't let us tear it up. There's a famous American pastor. He comes from one of the most famous evangelical Christian families in America. Um, the beginning of last year, then his wife fell into sin. And in that time when he was without her, he also fell into the same, into the same sin. He lost his home. He lost his church. He lost his reputation. He lost his vocation. And last week I got this letter that he'd written. And this is what he wrote. It's been eight months since I resigned my position and subsequently moved away moved at the invitation of a certain pastor and his elders, come and live with us. The first couple of months were very painful and difficult as I was detaching from everything and everyone I love in my hometown. But as time has gone on, God has increasingly been settling my heart and mind, meeting me in the deep places, exposing my idols, replacing them with a fresh assurance of his love. And grace. 
I could tell you a thousand stories of the ways God has sweetly met me, very specifically, in my darkest and most despairing moments, of which there have been many. Through many of you, God has met my guilt with his grace, my mess with his mercy, my sin with his salvation. He speaks of the great counselor and pastor and church that he's going to now. I'm better now, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, than I've been in probably years. This place and these people have become a sanctuary for me. A place where I'm getting the help and healing I need and long for. A place where I'm learning to breathe again. I was telling my mum the other day that even though this past year has been rocked by loss and pain and so much death, I'm more content and clear and at peace than I was a year ago, two years ago. Sometimes when it seems that God is killing you, he's actually making you alive. Please keep praying, because resurrection is God's speciality. I have great hope on most days that the best is yet to come. He really does work all things together for our good and his glory. Back to my cave. Many mercies to you all. That's what Paul is saying. That's why he's encouraging Timothy. Encouraging these churches that have all forsaken him. And they are following Hymenaeus and Philetus. And in all their folly. And he's reminding them of the mercy and the love of God. And I'll remind you all of it tonight. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he can't deny, he can't disown himself. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank thee for this faithful saying and these four stanzas that we've looked at together and oh, the wonderful truths that they tell us and the encouragements they give us and the warnings too. And we pray for grace to discriminate and discern and make the comforts ours and the holy living that they require also ours. Help us not to presume on mercy, but with a holy fear Seek to do thy good and perfect will at all times. We who have died to sin's reign over us and now live with this loving risen Savior in us and over us and alongside us and before us and behind us and above us, keeping us day by day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.